Let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come to you this evening to thank you for this time that we can spend in your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding. You've given us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray for understanding of your word tonight. Give us the wisdom that is that is found in, in your word. Um, we pray, Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us and that you teach us through your word. Thank you and praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so, you know, we've been doing ecclesiology. I don't know if this would fall into ecclesiology. We, we could possibly say that it does, but because of our discussion we had at the end of last week, I decided to go ahead and teach what the New Covenant teaches about the Old Covenant. Um, but I want to begin before we get into the... I want to say a few things before we get into the doctrine and before we dig into the scriptures. So there's a few reasons we as a church use the 1646 over the 1689. And I've talked to multiple people about this. One is because I don't believe the Pope to be the Antichrist. Um, he is an Antichrist, but he, I don't believe him to be the Antichrist. And second is the 1689 has a focus on Old Covenant law that I don't believe the New Testament actually has, which includes Sabbath keeping. Uh, I don't believe we necessarily keep the Sabbath in the sense of, first, we don't keep the Sabbath on Saturdays, right? And I don't see anything in the New Testament that says the Sabbath has been changed to a different day. I believe Christ is our Sabbath, and when we're in Christ, we're in the Sabbath. So, those are a couple of things why we hold to the 1646 over the 1689. But if you did a search for churches that hold to the 1646, you'd probably find that they're called what they call New Covenant churches. Churches that hold to New Covenant theology. Um, now, that's not an official doctrine of our church in a sense that you need to hold to that in order to be a member. I would never say you need to hold to New Covenant theology in order to be a member. I hold to it myself, but that doesn't mean that you would have to. Um, there's other things, too, that obviously we can have disagreements on, but you can still be a member of our church. So that New Covenant theology is not an official doctrine of our church in order that you have to hold to that in order to be a member of our church. However, it is the framework from which much of the preaching comes from. Now, this message is not going to be an outline of New Covenant theology. It would take another message, which I might end up doing. Um, but it's going to be a scriptural pre presentation of what the New Testament teaches us about the law, or more specifically, about the Mosaic law. So, let's start by turning our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. I said, if this is going to be um, kind of heavy. If you take notes, it would be, it'd be good to take notes. Because um, there's a lot of information here. Hebrews 7, verse 11. He says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. 
For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe which, with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, I believe. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests on the one hand existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he on the other hand because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. You almost need to give no commentary. That is such a blessing just reading that, just going over that. But let us notice some things from this text. First, verse 11. It says, Now if if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. So it was on the basis of the Levitical priesthood that they received the Levitical law. The Levitical law and the Levitical priesthood are tied together. The one comes from the other. The law comes from the priesthood. They're tied together. And then we go to verse 12. And this is kind of the framework here. He says, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So let me ask you, did the priesthood change with Christ? According to the writer of Hebrews, he most certainly did. Christ was not a Levitical priest. Verse 14 tells us that. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. So Christ was not a Levitical priest. But the Levitical law came from the Levitical priesthood. And Christ comes along and he's not even a Levitical priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not from Levitical priesthood. I honestly believe this, just this right here, this portion of scripture, should suffice that the Mosaic law is gone. That the Levitical law is gone. Because there was a change in priesthood, the Levitical law was tied to the Levitical priesthood, there was a change in priesthood, and it says by necessity there must also be a change in law. The priesthood changed 
from a Levitical priesthood with all of its laws and sacrifices to a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, Christ being the lawgiver. The Levitical priesthood with all its laws and sacrifice was established and part of the Mosaic covenant. You see, there was a covenantal structure there. It wasn't just laws come out of thin air. It wasn't the priesthood come out of thin air. They came out of the covenant. There was a covenantal structure. It was the Mosaic covenant that included the priesthood and it included the laws. The priesthood, the sacrifices, the Levitical code, if you will, was all part of the, that covenant, that Mosaic covenant. The whole system was tied together. And it, who, who did it apply to? Who did that whole system apply to? Old Testament Israelites, right? So in order to be a true Israelite, you were, ha you were to be under that system that was established at Sinai. That Mosaic law and covenant. Even if you were a Gentile convert, if you, if you happen to be a Gentile and you come in to, to Jerusalem and you wanted to convert to that, you had to come under that covenantal system. You had to bring offerings and sacrifices as part of the law. You had to. That was, that was the law. The whole system was tied together. Now, I know in our day we like to separate it, but I don't ever see the biblical writers doing that. But I understand some parts when they say, you know, the moral, the ceremonial and judicial, and it helps to clarify it. But the biblical writers don't separate it. It speaks of the law. But notice two big things about this portion of scripture here. First, the priesthood changed. Not just from a finite priest to an infinite priest. That it did, but it also changed from the line of Levi to the line of Judah. So what does that mean? Well, the Mosaic Covenant and the Levitical Code or law that, that was all tied together was something that was through the line of Levi. The laws, if you want to go through the book of Leviticus, those laws, they were tied to the tribe of Levi. And what happened? The priesthood changed. It not a, it's not a Levitical, Levitical priesthood. The whole covenantal system was tied to that family. Now Christ comes and he's not even from the line. He's not a Levitical priest. And as it says in verse 12, of necessity, the law must change also. So that's what, that's what God's word says right there, right? If the priesthood changed, the law has to change. And the priesthood did change. Therefore, the law had to, had to change. So the word for change means to transpose two things, one of which is put in place of the other. So it's taking one thing out of the way and putting something else in place of it. That's what it means. So when the priesthood changed, by necessity, the law had to change. The law had to be taken out and something put in place of it. The law of Christ in place of the law of Moses. And it says it's of necessity. It mean, meaning it has to happen. We, couldn't, we can't argue against that there. That God said it has to happen. If the priesthood changed, the law has to change. And he, the priesthood did change. And the writer of Hebrews proves it here. So there had to be a change in the law because there was a change in the priesthood. So the priesthood changed is the first thing. But also this, the second thing. There is a disannulling of the commandment or law. Look at verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of his weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. 
So the writer of Hebrews here actually conflates the words commandment and law right here in verses 18 and 19. So l listen to John Owen, what he says here. The command is of a large, is of as a law, jeez. The command is of as large a significance as the law. For the same thing is intended in both the words. It is not, therefore, the particular command for the institution of the legal priesthood that is in intended, but the whole system of mosaical institutions. For the apostle, having already proved that the, the priesthood has was to be abolished, he proceeds on that ground and from thence to prove that the whole law was also to be in like manner abolished and removed. That's John Owen. So in other words, because the writer already proved that the priesthood changed from finite to infinite and from Levi to Judah, and in so doing, it abolished that old priesthood. Guess there's not a Levitical priesthood today, is there? It ended, when did it end? 70 AD, right? When, when God destroyed the temple. They don't have a temple to go practice their sacrifices. There's no Levitical priesthood. It ended. And the writer proves this. Now he establishes and proves that because of that, the law, that Levitical law that was tied to that priesthood also was to be abolished. I think this portion of scripture is actually very, very clear. But let's look at some other scriptures on this as well. There's, there's so much in this. Just look up the next chapter here in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on a day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We just saw that in Romans, right? And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Notice verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with your fathers. The new covenant that he speaks of, he says, is not going to be like the old covenant. This is part of the problem when you, when you debate, if you ever do debate, paedo-baptism, right? They go, well, it's, it's like the Abrahamic covenant. No, it's not. God said it's not going to be like that covenant. It's not like the covenant. And he actually just proved it in chapter 7, right? He proved that it's not like the same, it's not like the covenant that was made before. It's a different covenant that was not like the old covenant. It has a new priest who ever lives to make intercession. The old covenant did not have that. It has new law because the priesthood changed, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 there. It's not like the old ministration. Then in verse 13 right here, the same chapter, he says, When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. 
Obsolete means to become becoming old, obsolete, worn out, and so to be abrogated. So the question we must ask, is it obsolete? Is the old covenant obsolete? That's when he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. The writer says it's becoming obsolete and ready to disappear. He's talking about the old covenant. So when did it when did it disappear? Anybody know? Seventy. It was still people were still practicing that old covenant system until seventy A.D. when God destroyed the temple, as Jesus told him that he was going to in Matthew twenty-four. So, listen to John Gill on this. This covenant was of right abolished. Talking about the old covenant, this covenant was of right abolished at the time of Christ's death. Upon his ascension, the spirit was given and the gospel published among all nations, by which it more and more disappeared. And in fact, it quite vanished away when the city and temple of Jerusalem were destroyed, which was in a little time after the writing of this epistle. So the apostle with great propriety says it is ready to vanish away. It was ready to vanish away, right? When the writer of Hebrews wrote this, it was ready. It hadn't vanished away yet because this was written before 70 AD. So it was ready to vanish away and it did vanish away. Listen to John Owen actually on this same portion of scripture here. I actually put this quote up on Facebook because I thought it was such a great quote. It says, All the glorious institutions of the law were at best but as stars in the firmament of the church. And therefore were all to disappear at the rising of the sun of righteousness. Just like the stars we see in, in the heavens at night, right? When you walk outside, you see all the stars. You come out to my house, you can see billions of stars. Guess what happened when the sun rises? You don't see them anymore. They're gone. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. All those laws in that old covenant system, yes, they, 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 they were part of, he says, church, which he means Israel. It's actually off the same verse right here. Israel, the church, I, I personally believe the same thing too, but you had all these laws, but when the sun rises, those laws disappeared. So it was obsolete and ready to vanish away, that old covenant system with all of its laws and sacrifices. It served Israel for a time and for a purpose. But, after, but that time and purpose was over at the dawning of the day star. Let's keep moving on. Turn up to Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 18, he says, For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sounds of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touched the mountain... It will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. What mountain are they talking about here? Huh? Mount Sinai. Yeah, Mount Sinai. This is talking about Mount Sinai when God gave the, God gave the law to Moses. Verse 22. But you, who? Church? Believer in Jesus Christ? But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it 
that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. And now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now remember, verse 18 through 21, he's talking about Mount Sinai. What happened to Mount Sinai? God gave the law of Mount Sinai, right? So, and you get down in verse 26 here, he says, and his voice shook the earth then. So when is then? It was when God was speaking to Moses at Mount Sinai when he gave him the law. That's what he's talking about. And he says, but now, he says, and his voice shook the earth then, but now... He has promised, saying yet once more, why not? Why shake not only the earth, but also the heaven? When is this but now? It was when the writer of Hebrews wrote this, right? That's what he's saying. Then, back then, when, the, when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, he shook the earth. But now, he's not only going to shake the earth, he's also going to shake the heavens. I want us to get this... We're not, we're not there yet. But I want us to get this picture of heaven and earth right there. The heavens and earth. He's not talking about the actual literal heavens and the literal earth right here. Listen to John Owen on this. Sorry, I got a bunch of quotes tonight. Just so y'all... Typically when we deal with little... Um, harder portions of scripture, I like to include, include quotes so you don't think I'm a heretic. John Owen, it says, It is therefore the heavens of mosaical worship that's what he's talking about the heavens of mosaical worship and the judicial church state with the earth of the political state belonging thereunto that are here intended so it was the the, the heavens of the mosaical worship and the earth of the political church state these were they that were shaking shaken at the coming of Christ and so shaken as shortly after to be removed and taken away for the instruction for the introduction of the more heavenly worship of the gospel and the immovable evangelical church state. So you had the heavens and the earth of the old covenant system that was being shaken and taken away is what it says there. That is, is shaken and is removed to the bringing in of the immovable evangelical church state. So according to, to Owen, and I think he's right, the old covenant worship was heaven. The political state was earth, was to be removed. And that's actually in, in agreement with Hebrews 8.13, right? When it says that the uh, it was obsolete and ready to disappear. It's actually in agreement with Matthew 24 also. And I believe the book of Revelation. That covenant that was established at Sinai with Moses was to be removed. Notice verse 27 of the same chapter here. 
And this expression, yet once more, that's what he said in verse 26. But now he has promised saying yet once more. But, and this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken remain. The things which can be shaken was that system with all of its works, laws, temples, sacrifices, and it was to be removed. That was the things that could be shaken, that old covenant system. All, all the works that they were doing in that old covenant system, it could be shaken and removed. And that's what God said he's going to do. And he tells us why in verse 28. Therefore, since we, actually the NASB says receive, it should say receiving. Since we receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So we, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It was in the present active and it was a participle. It was, it was something that was happening then. We receiving a kingdom. A kingdom which cannot be shaken. The old covenant system was being shaken and taken away. And the new kingdom, the new covenant system is something that cannot be shaken. It's an everlasting covenant. One more quote from Gil on this. I got a couple more quotes. Y'all just have to bear with me on them. This is Gil in verse 27. This is to be understood of Christ's coming to the destruction of Jerusalem when there was an entire, entire removal of the Jewish state, both political and ecclesiastical, and of the whole Mosaic economy, and of things appertaining to divine worship, which were made with hands as the temple and the things in it, and which were made to be removed, for they were to continue no longer than the time of reformation. And this removing of them designs the abolition of them and the entire putting an end to them. At which state, not only their civil government was wholly put down, but their ecclesiastical or the, their ecclesiastic state also. For the place of their worship was destroyed, the daily sacrifices ceased, and the old covenant and the manner of administrating it vanished away. And all the legal institutions and ordinances which were abolished by the death of Christ were no more performed in Jerusalem. The temple and temple service perishing together. That's a sad thing, right? That all happened in 70 AD. But it, but it's, it was a doing away of that old covenant system. It's gone, brethren. All of it. And what remains is a new covenant system established by the blood of the testator. That's what it says in Hebrews 9.16. And when we take communion every Sunday, what does Jesus say? This is the New Testament in my blood. His blood established the New Testament. That's the system we're under. Not the old one because it's gone. So let's go to another book here and see another writer's perspective. Go with me to Galatians chapter 4. Verse 21. I think this is, um, Paul makes this as clear as it can be. Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a bondwoman and one by a free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son of the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these two women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, let me stop right there. It says how many covenants here? 
Two covenants. He gives us a picture of two sons that came from two women. A bond woman or a slave woman and a free woman. And he says these two women are two covenants. What covenant was established at Sinai? Mosaic covenant. Mosaic covenant was established at Sinai. So we're not going to get there yet, but I'll bring this out in a minute. But I want you to notice the one, the one covenant. It was established at Sinai. It was the Mosaic covenant, which included what? The Levitical priesthood, all the Levitical laws. Look at verse 25. Now this Hagar, that's the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, is Mount Sinai in Arabia and it corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. What was the present Jerusalem? That was the Jerusalem that was still standing when Paul wrote Galatians, right? It didn't stand anymore after 70, right? So that's what he's talking about. That old covenant system, it corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the one that is still standing and the temple is still there. We can still go to the temple. Not the present in our day, but the present in Paul's day. So the covenant was still being practiced because this temple was still standing. So Hagar, the bondwoman, the slave woman, is the Mosaic covenant. That's what Paul says, right? And it was established on Sinai. And it corresponds to the present earthly Jerusalem. So what were the, the, the first century Jews, what did they do? They looked at the old covenant system, didn't they? They all went back to the Mosaic covenant. That's the children of that of Hagar. Notice 26, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. But our mother, that's Paul's words, right? Is Sarah. Hagar was a slave woman. She's the old covenant that was established at Sinai. Sarah is our mother. She is the free woman, not the bond woman. And remember, there's two covenants, right? The one that was established at Sinai. So which covenant would Sarah be? The new covenant. You had a covenant, the old covenant that was established at Sinai, you have the new covenant now. And in the new covenant, we have freedom. And he goes on, I'll, I'll, we'll see this. So Sarah is the new covenant. Hagar is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. So the picture is Hagar, the bondwoman, is the old covenant. Sarah, the free woman, is the new covenant. Now go with me down to verse 30. What does Paul tell us to do with the bondwoman? What's the bondwoman, real quick? I've said it multiple times, but I just want to make sure we're all clear on this. The bondwoman is Hagar, right? And Hagar is what? The old covenant, right? The Mosaic covenant. What does Paul tell us to do with the bondwoman? Verse 30. What does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. We're not, we're not, we don't go back to that old covenant system. We're not, what did it do? It produced slavery. Actually, we saw it last week. I, I don't think I'm going to get back into that this week, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul actually calls that system administration of death. That's his words again. Like, I, I wouldn't call it that myself, only because scripture calls it that. But Paul says, cast out the bondwoman. And he tells us why, too. So cast out the bondwoman. Cast out Hagar. Cast out the, the Mosaic covenant. And why? 
she shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. The old covenant system is not an heir with the new covenant system. It doesn't come over. The old covenant does not come over. The new covenant will not be like the old covenant. Remember, that's what the writer of Hebrews says, which he's just quoting Jeremiah 31. When Jeremiah, 30, when Jeremiah prophesied of the new covenant, he said it's not going to be like the old covenant. So it doesn't come over. Listen to um, Luther in this area of scripture right here. In one more respect, the law has been abolished. The civil laws of Moses do not concern us and should not be put back in force. That does not mean that we are exempt from obedience to the civil laws under which we live. On the contrary, the gospel commands Christians to obey government, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. And that's from Romans 13, 5. Are you guys seeing this? I mean, I think it's clear from the new covenant. Now, that's, that, I think that's clear right there. God, Paul tells us to cast it out. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, safeguard myself at the end of the message on this because I know where some of y'all's minds might be going. But let's look at a couple harder texts. No. <laughs> I know. 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 3. He said, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of, the, out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, into which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on which, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let me take a little bit of mystery out of this. Now, we went through this portion when we went through our eschatology um, study, but I think it's re relevant to this study as well. First, let me ask you this. Was the whole heaven and earth destroyed by the flood? No. Now, mind you, destroyed means to put out of the way entirely, to abolish, put an end to ruin, or to kill. So the whole world was, he, he says the world was destroyed. 
in, in the text here, right? He says the world was destroyed. The world then was destroyed. But we know that the whole world, the whole earth and heaven was not destroyed. We know that. So the whole world was not destroyed. There are eight people in the ark still, right? With animals. And do we not live on the same earth as them before the flood? We all live on the same earth, right? It wasn't God didn't destroy the earth completely and make a whole new earth for us. It's the same earth, same animals, same plants. He didn't obliterate the earth at the flood. And that's actually the comparison that Peter gives us. He tells us, just like of old, he destroyed that world. But he didn't destroy the whole physical heavens and the earth. He destroyed that world, that, that governmental system, if you will, the way that the world was run at that time. God destroyed it. And that's his comparison. And look at verse 7. Look at this first John. But the present heavens and earth by his word are reserved for fire. So there was, an, there was a heaven and earth back then, right? That he said was destroyed by water. But the whole heaven and earth wasn't destroyed by water. So then he says there's a present heaven and earth. When's his present? When Peter was writing this, right? There's a present heaven and earth at that time. I believe this would be the same one that we saw in Hebrews chapter 12. Remember it spoke about the, the, the shaking of the heavens and the earth? That, that shaking of that old covenant system? That's what I believe this would be talking about. But the present heaven and the earth, that, that, that old covenant system that was still in place, is what I believe this to be talking about. Now you, not, you may not believe me on this or follow me, and that's fine. At least I'm consistent in this, and I'll show you. I believe the heaven and the earth to be... The old, that old covenant state of Israel that it's talking about right here. Remember John Owen in Hebrews 12, he says, The heavens of the mosaical worship and the judicial church state with the earth of their political state. That's what he saw there too. And actually John Owen actually agrees with me on this portion of scripture here too. I actually put a blog post together a few years back about what he believes on this. Um, he believes the same thing. So that covenant, old covenantal system was to be burned up is what we can see from the text. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Without spending a bunch of time on this because I don't know if y'all remember when we did the eschatology study, I, I did spend a bunch of time on the day of the Lord. I'll give us one verse I think that should suffice on this. It's, it's not talking about the last day at the consummation. That's not what I believe it to be talking about. When the dead shall rise and, and, will, will, and they'll be judged. We believe in that day, right? There's coming a day when the dead shall rise and all will be judged. I don't believe that's the, what this is talking about. It's talking about the time that Luke calls the days of vengeance. When the Lord destroys the covenant breakers and their system in 70 A.D. Matthew, or Matthew, Malachi 4, 5, it says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus quoted that, right? And he said it was fulfilled. He said John the Baptist was Elijah. John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come. He was talking about the Malachi chapter 4 right there. That Malachi, or that Elijah that was going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord was John the Baptist. So it was 
Um, Jesus says it was fulfilled. So Elijah had come, and then the great, great and terrible day of the Lord. And if you if you know your, I know Jonathan will be very familiar with this, but Peter actually applies the last days to his current time at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when he says when he says the the last days, he says this is fulfilled. This is that which Joel spoke about that was being fulfilled right then. It was being fulfilled. In that first century. So before I get too sidetracked too much. The day of the Lord was when God was going to come in judgment on Israel. And that heaven and earth was to be destroyed. Peter says in verse 10. It will come like a thief. Into which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. The word for elements here. It never in the New Testament does it mean like your elemental table. It does not mean like the elements that are out in space that, you know, that's what, unfortunately that our dispensational mindset sometimes goes to that. And that's what I was taught that it's talking about the elements like the stars and, and all this. That's not what it's talking about. And the New Testament never used the word elements in that sense. It always used the words of the old covenant system. Those elements, the elements of the old covenant system. Listen to Hebrews 5, 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for me to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. He's talking about the old covenant right then. You, need, you still need to be taught these things. You still need to be taught the scriptures. In Galatians chapter 4, as we already saw, he, he, this same word is used and it's talking about the old covenant. In Colossians chapter 2, it's used as well and it's talking about the old covenant. So every time the, the elements are the old covenantal system, it's what made up the old heavens and earth, the old covenant. Now, let me ask you a simple question. It might be a simple question. You might not know it, Bob. How was the temple in Jerusalem destroyed? Y'all know? By fire. By fire. They burn it down. They burn it down. To, to, to nothing. To, like Jesus said, there shall not be one stone left upon another. You know why? Because they burnt everything down. So it passed away. Which is ex actually what Jesus tells us in Matthew 24. He tells us it's going to happen. This is what happened. The elements were burned up. The old heaven and old earth have passed away. The old heaven and old earth passed away. They're burned up. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And before we go to our last portion of scripture, let me ask you something. What is Matthew 24 about? Y'all know? I know we, we dealt with it, but it's about... The destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, it's about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Remember his disciples come to him. Jesus leaves the temple. He, he, he pretty much condemns the Jewish leaders at that time in Matthew 23. Then he leaves the temple and he walks over to the Mount of Olives. I don't know how far that is. Um, but he, he leaves, he heads east, goes to Mount Olives, and his disciples come to him and say, Look at the temple, Jesus. And they point him to the temple. And he tells them, Not one, not one stone will be left upon another. He tells them, It's going to be destroyed, and not one stone will be left upon another in Matthew 24. And then he proceeds to tell them how it's going to happen. 
So they asked the question, and Jesus, and he proceeds to teach them about it. But towards the end of his discourse, if you're familiar with Matthew 24, towards the end of his discourse on the destruction of Jerusalem, what does he say? And I think we mainly agree with this, at least that I know of, that when Jesus said this generation will not pass until all these things take place. He goes through from verse 3 to verse 34, I believe, and he gives all this stuff that when we read it today in our culture, we're like, there's no way that happened. But as I dealt with when we went through our eschatology study, historically, we can see that it happens. And when you interpret, use Scripture to interpret Scripture, you can see that it's not literally the stars falling from the sky and all these other things that, that you see in the text. But Jesus tells them this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And he meant everything about the destruction of that system. Everything that was, the, the, this system is coming down and all these things will take place before this generation will pass. However, the very next verse after that, he says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my word shall not pass away. So he spends 30 something verses dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and the old covenant system. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away. What heaven and earth? I believe he's talking about the old covenant system. The same thing that I believe Peter to be talking about. The same thing I believe the writer of Hebrews to be talking about. I told you I was consistent in it. I might be wrong, but at least I'm consistent. I don't think I'm wrong either. But So he says the heaven and earth will pass away. So right after giving the discourse of the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and that whole system, he says heaven and earth will pass away. And it happened. Just as Jesus prophesied. But to go, let's go to our last verses here. These verses were brought up last week. Matthew chapter 5. verse 17 Matthew 5 17 he says do not this is Jesus speaking he says do not think that I come to abolish the law of the prophets I did not come to abolish but to fulfill for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So, Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. We can all agree that he did, right? He fulfilled it. He fulfilled the law and the, the prophets. And he actually showed it to his disciples, right, on the road to Emmaus. What, what a great sermon that would have been. To listen to on the road to Emmaus, even going from Moses all the way through the prophets, showing you everything that concerning himself. He fulfilled it all. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. Now notice in verse 18. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away. If I'm right, and of course I believe I am. This heaven and earth is the same one that's in Matthew 24 that Jesus said will pass away. Jesus said after the destruction of Jerusalem, the heaven and earth will pass away. And right here it says until heaven and earth pass away. So I believe it's the same one. He's 
connected it with the passing away of Jerusalem and that old covenant system. And it would make sense in our context here too. If we could read it like this, because I know our minds, how our minds work, because I do this to myself. When I think of heaven and earth, I don't think of system. I think of heaven and earth, right? But if we could read it like this, until the whole old covenant pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law. But notice, he says, until... So, what does that tell us? That tells us heaven and earth will pass away, right? And the law will pass away because he says, these things won't pass away until... Just like... Um, this is a good apologetic for you to use against uh, like Roman Catholicism that, that believe in uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, that she, she stayed a virgin her whole life. It says, she knew, did not know a man until after the birth of Christ. Which means, after Christ was born, she knew a man. So this says, heaven and earth won't pass away. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Do we think all is accomplished? I believe so. In other words, do you believe Jesus accomplished the fulfilling of the old covenant, the law and the prophets? I do. And if so, then the heaven and earth have passed away and the law has passed away. And I think I clearly demonstrated that from some very clear texts that the law has passed away. Those other texts clear were clear about it. Galatians chapter 4, <laughs> Hagar, cast her out. The old covenant system has passed away with all its laws and sacrifices and types, which I did not get into, but that's a study in and of itself for another time, that the types, which was the old covenant system, they pointed to the anti-type, which is Christ. Or as I, I, I often say, the shadow points to the substance, right? What I said on Sunday. The type points to the anti-type. When the anti-type shows up, the types fade away. They disappear. When the shadow, which points to the substance, when the substance shows up, the shadows disappear. So that whole Old Covenant system, it was designed to point us to Christ. And Paul even says it in Galatians chapter 3 that this law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And the other th thing that it, the other way that it does it, is as we see in the book of Romans, it says the law was given. Why did it say the law was given in Romans? Y'all know? So the sin would increase. Why? Because the more that you're trying to obey these 613 commands and you know that you fail, what are you going to do? God, I need a Savior. I can't keep them. So that, the law was there to point us to Christ, to, to, as our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Christ shows up. That old covenant law passes away. There are other portions of Scripture that we didn't touch this week due to time. One is 2 Corinthians 3. But we saw that last week in our question and answer session right there. Another one you could, I'd, I'd encourage you to look up is Romans chapter 7. Where Paul says the law, he equates, equates the law to a husband and us to the wife. And he says when the husband dies, the wife is free. And the husband died through the ministry of Christ and we are now married to Christ. 
I would encourage you to study this out for yourself a little bit more. But in closing, I want to say this and be clear about this. This is what I said. I, I, I was going to uh, safeguard myself at the end of the message because so I, I know what my mind would be thinking if I was sitting down there. In Romans 15, 4, Paul says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. I'm in no way saying throw out your Old Testament. We can learn, and we do learn much from it, right? We could spend, we should spend time reading and studying the Old Testament just as much as the New Testament. What I'm saying is we're no longer under that system as a rule of law anymore. That's not our rule of law anymore. Our rule of law is that we are under the new, and in the words of the writer of Hebrews, a better covenant. The everlasting covenant with a better hope. And this is actually the main point of Hebrews, right? When you read through Hebrews, this is what you should come away with. Jesus is so much better in everything. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than all of that. And that's... So what, what does the writer of Hebrews do at the end? In chapter 12, he says, after he shows you he's better than all this, he says, look unto him, the author and finisher of your faith. That's what we should be doing. We should be looking unto Christ. Not back at that old covenant system. So, let me mention this. This ain't in, in my notes. Because of one of the questions that come up last week. Because we're in a new covenant, we still have laws in our new covenant. If you could turn to, you don't have to turn down, I'm just saying. If you turn to a latter portion of any of the Pauline epistles, there's laws, right? It's saying, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't kill. You see all of this stuff in the, in the New Covenant. Actually, this came up the other day. Um, ben said something about, like, honor your father and your mother being in the Old Covenant. I said, well, that's actually New Covenant also. It says in Ephesians, the latter portion of Ephesians, honor your father and mother. It says, children, obey your parents. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. It says all this. These, these are laws that are in the New Covenant. It still has, we can look to the New Covenant and see how we're supposed to live. I don't need to look back to the old. Now, there's nothing wrong with looking back there, like I said, but we're not under that as a covenantal system anymore. We're under Christ. We're in Christ. And we, we live by the law of Christ. Um, let me actually close with that verse. I think it's Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one look into yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's law there, right? That's telling you what to do. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill of all the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is? What did Christ narrow down to the law to in his earthly ministry? Love God, love people. Yep, two. Two laws. You don't have 613 laws anymore. You have two. Love God, love your neighbor. Amen.